Well, I am delighted, and it's fun to be back, and it's fun to see so many familiar, <coughs> excuse me, faces. Now, in the first service I asked, how many of you know me from before? Oh, wow. See, Dave? They're hanging around. <laughs> I love it. And I love that I've been asked to share about one of my favorite books in the Bible. And as I told the first group, this is a letter. And we are reading somebody else's mail. <laughs> but it's okay, because Paul says, share this letter with these guys, and these guys will share their letter with you, and, uh, and be taught by it. So right before we step in, I, I want us just to say, Father, so glad that we know that you are here. You're around us, among us, and in us through the wonderful gift of Jesus. And so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all of us this morning will be pleasing, pleasing to you. Your name be praised, amen. So this is a letter <clears throat> and uh, I think what, one of the things that I've found uh, this time in reading and studying in this letter is that Paul weaves not only direction to them, but his own life experience back and forth. So we see that the things that he tells us to do, he's done, and he shares that with us as an example, which is really great. You remember in chapter one, just a quick recap, I'm gonna take less time this time, but remember in chapter one that Paul greets these people whom he has never met because this is a church that was started by Epaphras and uh, Paul's in prison and he's just come to know and love these people because of the report that's come back to him that these are great and good people who are living out the Christ life that was given to them in the gospel and they're living in such a way that there's fruit and then Paul launches into this wonderful declaration of who Jesus is. And that's stunning, it's profound. A pastor that I was talking to yesterday, in fact, at a memorial service, said, oh, the book of Colossians, he said, when I first read that for real, not just words, but when I read it for real, and put my heart into it, he said, it threw me against the wall almost, because it is so profound about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done, and that he's ours because of his work on the cross. Incredible, and then Carl came, and he preached to you from chapter two, and he uh, looked at that phrase, fullness in Christ, that Jesus himself had the fullness of the Godhead in him, all deity, and Jesus is in us, and so we too have fullness. And just to point, that fullness is ours. There's no begging for it. You all got it, I got it. It's ours, because it's in Jesus and he's in us. Is that not amazing news? Now we, we discover through the rest of our life what that means, what fullness in Christ means. 
But basically it's like we got everything we need for life. We have everything we need to live life the way God wants us to and to enjoy it, to enjoy his peace and so on. Now, Dave last week talked about the fact that this is the thing that changes everything. This changes everything. And the this is Jesus. And if he truly is changing everything, then folks, he's changing our relationships. And so Paul could say, there's no longer us and them, Greek, Jew. There's no longer slave, free. There's none of those bad categories of people that were listed, which I can't even remember their names, but you know, there were people that were kind of the scum of the earth. There's no caste system. There's none. And our relationships, every single one of them will change when we have fullness in Christ. Starting with, and most importantly, the place where it's hardest to live out our faith, in our homes, right? That's where we can be snarky, right? That's where we can be selfish because they have to put up with us, right? That's where children disobey. They don't disobey at school lots of times, but at home, they disobey. That's where dads talk tough without the love. Why? Because we're comfortable at home. And the point that Paul is making is, listen folks, everything changes. This is transformational for your very intimate life with the people that you're closest to. Now, it's true that everything changes, but Paul has been telling us throughout the book, and he'll continue in chapter four, that we have an integral part in that, that this isn't all up to God, even though it's all God's. It's one of those yes and yes things. It's both and. So even in, in uh, chapter two, Paul says, Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. And then in chapter three he says, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, set your minds on things above where God is. In other words, lift up, lift up. Put your focus there. Put to death, put to death. And the nice thing about death is that when it comes, it is final, but there is a process for dying. We're learning that out at Friendsview, where we live. There is a process. I've had the chance to sit vigil with some whose families couldn't be there in their last hours. It's a precious experience to be on hand as someone enters glory. On top of that, Sometimes dying takes a long time, right? And my folks used to raise chickens for meat. So you know what that meant. Chickens have to die. You know what happens when chickens get their heads cut off. They dance. (laughs) And the process there for them takes a little bit before they stop dancing. And you know, sometimes those old ways in us that we want to put to death flap around for a while while we get a hold of who God is in the fullness that we have in him. 
and he gets a hold of us in those places in our life. And then Paul says, put on. Don't run around in your rags, folks. We got beauty to put on. We got glory to put on. And so he tells us to wrap it all up in love. And then he tells us to let the peace of Christ rule. And God's word to build its home right inside of us. Why? Because that's where Jesus is. That's where the fire for our new life is. It's found right at the core of who we are. That's life. That's profound. And then he tells us that whatever we do, just do it in the name of Jesus. In his authority, because of his character, in the way he would do it, under his banner. Do it all there. Now, change is a great thing, and we all need it, and many of us want it. And transformational change is not a change that can come from the outside in. It always starts from the inside and works its way out. So Paul knows that we're gonna have to invest, see? And the investment is all those things he said plus one more. Because if it's just a list of do's and don'ts, checking off the boxes, yep, I, I put that to death, yep, I put that on, you know, then it's all about works, isn't it? But Paul says now in, in chapter four, <clears throat> he says, devote yourself to prayer. Why? Because prayer is that place where we meet with God. Now, prayer has always been a, a place of struggle in my life, I'll admit it. Not easy. Not easy to pray. And I've thought about this some, and I think part of it is, and maybe this could be corrective for all of us with our younger people, is that when I was taught to pray, I was taught to talk. I was not taught to listen. And so my prayers were one way. In fact, you could say I said my prayers. I'm not sure I prayed. I'm learning to pray. And I'm learning because I'm learning from Paul what that means to devote myself to prayer. It means be diligent in it, be steadfast in it, be constant in it. And there's a way to do that, and that's by staying awake. He says in chapter four, (laughs) devote yourselves to prayer, be watchful. That's a word that can mean stay awake, be alert. Be watchful and thankful. And that watchful word, that stay awake word, right in the middle of devotion to prayer and and gratitude, thankfulness, that's the kingpin. If you are not awake to what God is doing all around you and in you and through you and in others, then it will be hard for you, very difficult, to be devoted to prayer. And it will be very difficult for you to be grateful, really grateful. You've ever been at Thanksgiving and the plan was everybody goes around and says something they're thankful for and everybody says the same thing and it's tired and dreary. (laughs) I've been in those family gatherings. I probably said the dreary, mundane thing without really connecting to the joy of Thanksgiving. But you have to stay awake. You have to stay awake. And this is a real problem for us in life, isn't it? Not just in prayer, but everywhere. 
We, we wander through life kind of on autopilot. And literally, some of us are driving, have been driving cars that are driverless for longer than they've had them on the streets. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I can't tell you how many times I was truly headed to visit someone while I was pastor to women here and ended up at Cedar Mill. The car came and I just was in it. And I probably went past all kinds of turnoffs and ramps and, and you know, lights and everything without ever being there. What does it take to be awake? You know, go with a five-year-old. Walk with a five-year-old. And you find out what it means to be awake. They teach you to see woolly bear caterpillars. They teach you to see little stones that are in the shape of a heart. They teach you to see butterflies. They teach you to open your eyes. But for most of us, we wander through places that are familiar to us and looking only for the regular and the normal. And there's magic all around us because God's around us, always creating, always moving us, always at work in this world around us, in us, through us, and in others. So we need to be awake. And we have a problem spiritually because we're not awake. We wander through prayer times just on auto. We sit in church and think about lunch. I see you out there. (laughs) You see, we're not awake so much of the time. And so Paul's call to us here is to be awake. Be awake to him, Jesus, the one who changes everything. So I've been learning through a couple of different ways to be awake in my prayer life. And so I thought I'd share them with you. And if they're helpful, great. If they're not, okay. One way is the ancient way of rehearsing, reviewing, a time period, like a day or a week, and just saying, well, Lord, I'm just gonna sit here and wait for you to talk to me, but would you roll the screen and now just show me what happened today? Where were you? Did I see you? Were you in that person? Oh, yes. And that happened. That was you. You were in disguise, but you were there. I saw you in that person. Thank you. Do you see how that just raises the level of your gratitude when you see that he's at work all around you. Another way that I have been staying awake in my own prayer life is to use Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 as a kind of a, I don't know what you call it, a template. So, search me, O God, and know my heart. So, Lord, What have I given my affections to? Where do I find joy? Where have you been at work in me? Know my heart. Sometimes I don't even know it. I wander through life, unconnected with the deeper things that are going on in my soul. Search me, know my heart. Test me. 
and know my anxious thoughts. Now there's a lot of work for God to do there in me. I tend to be a, a, an anxious person, fearful. And so when I come with that request that he would test those anxious thoughts, what I'm saying is, Lord, I don't even know why I'm so upset sometimes because I know who you are, but oh, I was awake in the night. I was fretting about this. I was fretting about that. I was obsessed about this. Show me what the root of that is. Test those places out, God, and teach me. Teach me. Search my heart. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. So Lord, I'm looking back at my day. Did I talk to anybody unkindly? Was I dismissive of anybody? Did I marginalize anyone? Did I make anyone less a person because of the way I treated them? Show me, show me, because I want your way. So lead me then, Lord, in the way everlasting. Well, those are a couple of ways that I'm trying to stay awake in prayer so that my prayer life is part of what God's doing in me, and it's that fellowship of the Spirit with him. And that out of those kinds of praying times, I just get filled up with happy. I do. I get filled up with gratitude, gratefulness. And I think gratitude comes before Thanksgiving even. Gratitude says my heart is bent towards this goodness. And out of that, I will give thanks and praise. Well, Paul doesn't just pray lots, and we know he does, because in Colossians, the first chapter, he says, we're always thanking God for you, and whenever we think of you, we thank God for you. I mean, this guy's invested in prayer. He doesn't just say, you gotta pray, but he has given them an example of how to pray. And Paul's prayer for the Colossians is for their spiritual health, a robust spirituality, and for fruit. Now, what do most of us pray for most of the time? Fixings. So God fixed this, God fixed that. I'm in this kind of trouble, I'm in that kind of trouble. Now th this word from Paul, when he prays for those people and prays for their spiritual health and prays for the fruitfulness, Paul is in prison. And he would have every right to say, but for me, I got some problems here and uh, get me out of this place. You know, pray that for me, would you God? But he doesn't, he says to them, moving on, pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. See, Paul's not praying for a fix. He's praying for a vitality in his life and message that will connect with unbelievers so that the kingdom of God will thrive and grow, so that others will come into the family of God. 
so that Jesus can change everything. It's amazing. I'm learning how to pray. Read Paul. He's a prayer. And he'll teach you how to. And he does it because he's so enamored with Jesus. He gets it. He gets that Jesus changes everything. Now, Paul didn't just ask for himself. He says, pray for us. And why us? Because he's got a whole team with him. And I want us to look at that team. You know, when I first said I would preach on chapter four, I went, oh, brother, <laughs> all those names. <laughs> Who are these people? And then I thought, oh, wisdom. Paul is letting us in on an amazing group of people. And by example, he's going to live out and show out what he said in Colossians 3. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. And now he'll introduce us to his friends. Some are Jews, like uh, Aristarchus, who's been with him since the time that they were in Ephesus. And he too was in trouble in Ephesus and he's traveled with Paul. Now they're in Rome, he's in jail with him. Mark and Justice, those are the only three that are Jews with him. The rest are Greeks and Asians of every sort of stripe. Paul's community of faith is big. And he has wrapped his arms around some of the most amazing people. Take Mark. This is the Mark, cousin, or nephew, whatever, of Barnabas, cousin of Barnabas. He's the one that travel, was traveling with Paul and Barnabas when they were starting out their ministry. But he flaked out on them. He gave up when things got tough and left. And Barnabas wanted to call him back and let's just get him involved again. Paul said, no way. I don't want a loser on my team. And you can understand that. I mean, Paul was doing tough stuff in tough and dangerous places. And he wants people that are gonna stand with him and stand up to and still stand. And Mark wasn't one of those people. So they split up, heartache. Barnabas, Paul, buddies, friends, ministry partners, and they split up over Mark. Now look at, here is Mark, back with Paul. This is a family of fellow path partners, ministers of Jesus, who are walking together and have room for people who need a second chance. Amazing. Grace, forgiveness, love. And then he goes on, there's, there's so many people in here, but another one is Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave at one time, but now no more slaves and no more free. Christ is all and in all. Onesimus was the slave of Philemon, 
who a couple books later, a couple letters later from Paul, Paul describes him as one of the leaders in the Colossae church, and Onesimus was his slave who ran away. So he's AWOL, right? And Paul writes to Philemon and says, now listen, he's come to me, he's met Jesus, and now he's a partner in the ministry. Please don't treat him like a slave anymore, Philemon. Treat him like a fellow Christian, a brother in Christ. He's my son. Well, that's amazing. Paul has included in his team so many people who are so unlike him. In the old days, before Jesus, or before Paul had that encounter with Christ, on the road to uh, Damascus. Before he had that encounter, these people would not have been anywhere near him, nor would he have invited them or accepted them. But now, because Christ is all and is in all, they are part of his team. Wide open. What is Paul saying to us? He's saying, these are my people. Who are your people? And I want to ask us this morning, it's a question I have to ask myself all the time, how big is my embrace? Who are my people? Do I have room in my life for second chancers, for those who are AWOL? Do I have room to accept and embrace people who are different from me in the way they dress, the way they talk, even the thoughts they have and the values that they hold? Is my life or my arms, can I get, stretch them out big enough to include the everybody? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him. Folks, we're all whosoever's. We were not included in the original group, were we? Jesus' way is not the way of exclusion. Jesus' way is the way of open arms, of embracing those who need a second chance, who are desperate for forgiveness, who need to be accepted and loved. That's Jesus' way. And he made the way through his death and his resurrection. And we're included. Now, how do you get a heart like that? How do you get to be a person whose arms are stretched wide? Well, I think one thing is you put yourself in the place where you're around people who aren't like you all the time. Because quite frankly, we often stick with the clones, our own clones, right? And we're not comfortable if people are different than we are. And so we have to put ourselves in a place where we begin to see people that are not just like us. Now this has gotten harder for Armin and I <laughs> because we have gray hair. Most of the people where we live have gray hair. <laughs> Armin has a hearing aid. Most of them do. We don't have false teeth yet, but many of them do. <laughs> in other words, we're in a, a residential uh, community for uh, older folks. And it would be easy to just find people who 
than think like us, you know. But you know what, there's so many, there's such a variety of people where we live. We live right across the street from George Fox and we're meeting those students and we're embracing kids from other countries. Our little church has kids from other countries in it. We're learning how to step out and hold our arms wide. And that is the call for all of us. I think the other way is that it's a painful path, but it's a path of humility. And when we have experiences in our life that remind us that we don't know it all, that we aren't the kingpin, that as much as we uh, talk and, and are educated or whatever, that we don't know it all, we don't have it all, that we are really quite human. I have a story to tell you, it'll be very quick. This was before we had children, and it was a place I learned humility. Our friends had two little ones who were quite rambunctious. I had been trained as a teacher. You know what I mean? And so, because I felt sure of myself, I helped them with their parenting. I was disappointed that it didn't take, but then I, uh, I uh, chalked it off the fact they weren't very consistent. Now mind you, this was all before we had children, and you see what's coming. Because then we had children, and when they were still toddlers, I started calling them my little humblers, because those rules and all the techniques didn't work for me either. But you know what? It opened me up, because I was human too. And it opened me to embrace other families who had kids that didn't follow the rules. And it allowed me then, as a teacher, to be on parents' sides. You know, in the staff room, and some teacher would be grumbling about a kid and blaming it on the parent. And I knew what that meant. And I knew, out of my own experience, the humility that came when I had to agree that, God, I don't know it all. And there's a humility then that widens our embrace, that says, I truly am just human, and I have the love of Jesus in me, and so I can welcome you in. You can be yourself in my, the home of my heart. So, Jesus changes everything, folks. He does. He's the reason that we're here. Paul has shown us in this letter that the everything includes our relationships, our standing with God. It changes the boundaries of our life. It changes it through living into the fullness that he gives us in Christ. And it changes it as we pray with our eyes wide open to who he is and how he's still creating life all around us. We give him profound thanks and we offer to others in our prayers the kind of affirmations that Paul gave to the Colossians. You're on track, you're doing it, keep it up. Remembering this one, remembering this one, that this is not magic. 
but it's mysterious. Jesus is all and in all. And I want to close our time this morning in the message by just bringing praise to the one who changes everything. You might just even consider this a prayer for all of us this morning as I weave Philippians 2 and Colossians together. So we praise you, God, because you gave us Jesus, who although he was in very nature God, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. You and I were held together by Christ. This same Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. And so in his footsteps, you and I too will humbly walk alongside the hurting those in need of a second chance forgiveness, those who are different from us, those who have been marginalized socially, economically, politically, spiritually. We will walk not in pride about where we have come from and all that we have, but in humble gratitude for all that he has given us and where he is taking us. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things on earth and in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that everything in everything, he might have the supremacy. Christ in you and me, the hope of glory. Friends, our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. To him be all praise. May God's grace rest on us all. Thank you.